whilst recruitment is very tough, you do need resilience, you do need to be able to pitch it as well. And I think some clients have lost sight of the fact that they need to pitch about their company. And we talk about that all the time with our inner circle group. Know your differentiators, what sets you apart. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and this is a really special episode because today I'm joined by my colleague, Leanne Sarah Jones Hunt. Leanne is my Chief Operations Officer and also a fellow coach here at recruitmentcoach.com. She is our resident automation queen. She is awesome at creating systems and processes and building and training teams of virtual assistants. Leanne actually started her recruitment career in 2010 after completing her master's degree in law. And eventually she launched her own recruitment agency in the recruitment to recruitment or rec to rec space, which she ran for five years before entering the coaching business. Leanne's got a unique perspective on recruiting recruiters, which is one of the biggest challenges facing growing recruitment businesses. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Um, It's very surreal being uh, an actual guest on the podcast. Uh, I guess this stemmed from the fact that I listened to your podcast episodes in January, all 50 of them at the time, uh, which coincided with a step challenge that I had. So every evening I was probably listening to one or two uh, podcast episodes. So uh, then I reached out to you and said, why don't I throw my hat in the ring? and just see if there's any value I can bring uh, to the table for recruitment business owners and recruiters out there from a rep to rep perspective. Fantastic. But say say more about the step challenge. So um, essentially it's just me and my partner trying to up our steps. We both got a a Fitbit and then eventually an Apple Watch. And it was just to um, see how many steps we could do per day. And uh, eventually it worked out to be each month now we're averaging around 500,000 steps per month. So (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And so... Leanne, just can you give us a few highlights of your career? Like, what mm-hmm. would you say have been uh, some of the achievements that you're most proud of? Yeah, I guess my career, it, it, I, I guess it, it really did um, rapidly get to the point of um, success very, very quickly in the sense that I was promoted very quickly. I um, was put into a management position based on success and uh, billings very quickly. Um, essentially, I joined uh, a recruitment recruitment business and fell into recruitment like most people do Um, and I essentially was an office manager to begin with within that recruitment firm Um, and slowly but surely if recruiters were on the phone I would be uh, screening candidates if they were calling in so it just naturally progressed from there Uh, I was made a full 360 recruiter uh, within a couple of months um, and then within my first five weeks I achieved 47k uh, which was a record for the company. And I just took it took to it like a, a duck to water, I think. And I didn't realize I was perhaps as salesy um, as, you know, the, the results showed. But um, yeah, and I, I progressed quite quickly in my first company to manager, created a 75-page training manual for the team. And um, yeah, everything seemed to just fall into place quite quickly and, and became director within 12 months of that recruitment business. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Listen, um, I'd like to find out more about a few of those things. But first, I've always, I don't know why I've never asked you this before. Mm-hmm. Why did you not become a lawyer after your training? Yeah, I didn't enjoy my law degree. I really enjoyed my master's in media law. So the intention was to perhaps work for the BBC or Channel 4 in their legal department. And I essentially just went on a couple of interviews two days after handing in my dissertation for my master's um, and started having conversations um, regarding paralegal roles, office manager roles, just to get a foot in the door in London. Um, And yeah, it was never my intention to become a a straight lawyer or, or go down the route of the LPC or um, the bar. Um, I think I made my decision um, during my law degree. It was tough, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, no, that makes it. But it's funny that you were going for interviews and then uh. I think you you told me that you 
you got your first recruitment job very <laughs> soon after. How, how long after your dissertation? Yeah, so I, has to, I handed my dissertation in um, and then two days later I was interviewing in London um, and then I was offered there and then the position uh, straight wow. away. So, and then, you know, back in 2010, it was 18K. You know, I wanted to get my foot in the door straight away on the, the career ladder um, and I yeah. started a week later. Um, and yeah, I guess that's when my whole recruitment career started because even though I was office manager, I was very um, much a resourcer as well uh, from the get-go. Amazing. So it's, it's, it's hilarious to me that you, like your first job was in rec to rec, which is a very specific niche within recruiting, right? We should probably yeah. explain that because yes. in the UK, everyone understands rec to rec because it's a, quite a large industry, mm. but it's not so, and also in Australia, people uh, understand rec to rec. In the United States, it's really not very common. So could you just elaborate on what that means? Yeah. So recruitment to recruitment essentially is placing graduates, trainees, second jobbers, those with previous sales experience or not into the recruitment arena. So it could be um, financial recruitment businesses, pharmaceutical recruitment businesses, technology recruitment businesses. And I guess the main question that people ask is, well, why on earth can't they recruit for themselves? They are recruiters. And it, it's just the disconnect sometimes if you are recruiting for senior professionals within a particular niche, it's not um, your your forte it's not your skill set it's not your niche to recruit for um people based on personality versus skill um because essentially that's what it is you know if you don't have any recruitment experience there's not much to go on um bar you know little bits and pieces of experience so um yeah the direct to rec industry is tough um you know a lot of people either groan when it comes to um hearing about rec to recs or they uh, celebrate the fact that um they have uh a go-to and, and somebody who can be out there on the market to explain and bring people to the table who are um, suitable for recruitment. So um, it is a, it is an odd concept. You know, when I first started in rec to rec my friends and family would probably ask me four or five times over to try and explain um, <laughs> as to why, you know, recruiters would need to outsource their hiring. So Right, exactly. So recruiting recruiters for recruitment companies is uh, <laughs> yeah. is kind yeah. of a funny call, but it makes sense once you yeah. once you explain it so <laughs> fantastic so you fell into recruitment initially okay. as an office manager yes um, but then you found yourself getting involved in screening of you know, mm -hmm. candidates. And then how did things progress from there? So my business partner, who then became my business partner, started two weeks after me in the same company, Kat. And uh, we were trained together. So essentially, I became a full 360 recruiter with her. Uh, we were trained together. And just on that point, um, I would definitely advise people if you do have the budget to hire two people at the same time, um, just because you have an ally, you've got the support there, you've got that cam camaraderie, uh, that sort of friendly competition. And to be honest, I took that through uh, my whole career when I hired for myself. I advise clients to hire two people at the same time as well. So um, Kat started two weeks after me. Um, we, well, we, we were thrown in the deep end. We, we worked for a small boutique. There was sort of eight of us. Um, within three, four weeks of being a recruiter, we were just sent to a client meeting together um, without anybody senior. So we felt like we were almost um, pretending or playing dress up or something. You know, we didn't think <laughs> we'd be given the responsibility to just go ahead and do that in central London. Um, and, uh, but it was a success. We uh, took it in our stride, and um, I guess on the way on the way back from that meeting, we were in a taxi, and uh, the the taxi driver said, "Oh, what company are you girls from?" And we said, "Excel Jones." Now, uh, Kat's surname's Excel, mine's Jones, and we were, you know, jokingly saying it was our own company. And then we came clean and said, "No, you know, we don't work for ourselves, but um, hopefully in the future we will." And he said, "You know, I have no doubt that you will." So. Even from, you know, four weeks into my recruitment career, Kat and I had this idea of hopefully one day creating Excel Jones. Um, so I guess the journey, awesome. from, the journey from there is that Kat and I worked at three separate rec to recs together. So our, our careers intertwined and, you know, we sort of um, went away, both worked for big recruitment companies as internal recruiters. Then um, we came back to one another in terms of different companies. So uh, we always had a really strong bond and uh, we were top billers in companies. And 
I guess that's another thing that I wanted to touch upon um, and give some advice or observation on is that Kat and I, yes, we had degrees, you know, yes, we'd worked hard for that. Um, but back in 2010 and 2011, it did seem like the progression rate in all of these companies was very quick. And although definitely you want a strong career plan for your employees and uh, strong progression and promotion opportunities to get there, I do think people need to be mindful of the fact that you don't want to promote your staff too quickly or you'll get to the point where they'll just say what Kat and I did and said, well, what's next? Because we've been so accustomed to getting a promotion almost every quarter um, that you can get to the point where, you know, I, I kind of feel that there should have been more hoops to jump through for both of us um but equally we had exposure to the back office of all these companies that we were working really closely with the directors we knew all about the invoices and essentially we knew how to run a small recruitment business which um gave us the tools to finally go ahead and do it ourselves so uh, a couple of things that you mentioned i wanted to pick up on one is the idea of hiring more than one person at a time i think it's absolutely great advice and mm -hmm. Partially for the reason you said, which is that it creates camaraderie and, and also a bit of friendly competition and people going through their onboarding together. Also, from a time perspective for the owner or manager, it takes virtually the same amount of time and effort to train two people at once as compared to one. Definitely. And the other factor is, unfortunately, we have a high turnover, like staff turnover rate in the recruiting industry. And sometimes, you know, you you don't always know, and maybe the person themselves doesn't really know if they're going to enjoy recruiting or, or take to it if they're a trainee. And so then if you hire one and they don't work out, all that time and effort you put into training them is pretty much wasted. Yeah. And maybe even the danger is you take your eye off your own billings if, if you're still like a lot of owner operators still run a desk or manage clients. And then whereas if you hire multiple people at once, then there's a higher probability that someone is going to come have emerged from that successfully. Yeah, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. So, man, you took off like a rocket, Leanne. We are so different. I was a, like a really slow developer in recruiting. Um, but so you, you mentioned duck to water. I was definitely not. I was the ugly duckling. <laughs> um, so 47K in within five weeks of starting. So that's yeah. probably so, at 60 or $70,000 US. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And especially because they were, mm -hmm. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it was 47K in a week. So I'd been, it was five weeks in and then I made yeah. nine placements, which was 47K in a week. And my boss was actually skiing on holiday and I just kept texting every time there was a deal and he thought <laughs> it was some sort of joke. But, um, oh, but yeah, it was, I think it was the mentality of once <clears> you get your first or second deal, it's the addiction <clears> to <throat> the buzz of that and just striving to find more placements. So, um, you know, right. I'm, as you know, Mark, I'm incredibly high energy. So anything if you dangle the carrot i'll just keep going and going you know so <laughs> fantastic by the way i don't know if i 100 percent agree with what you're saying about um progression because i think <laughs> what it, what's more common that i've seen is companies don't have that career like path in mm -hmm. place. Yeah. And that's more so a reason why they lose people because mm -hmm. it's a very flat structure. There's the owner mm -hmm. and then they have say a team of five or 10 people mm -hmm. and really, and there's not like you can maybe get promoted to senior or consultant or something, but there's not uh, a clear career path for people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. one of the things that I've helped sort of faster growing companies to do is to map out, well, what, if someone is really successful, what is the next step for them? And then what after that? And then what after that? Mm -hmm. So that there is that incentive for the really mm -hmm. ambitious people like you were mm. to be able to see the opportunity and really become ingrained in that business. But, mm. um, yeah, Maybe I, it's always a balance, isn't it? Because yeah, I mean, on that point, I guess when I was pitching to graduates and trainees about the career structure in a recruitment industry, in the recruitment industry, I would talk about meritocracy and that you're promoted yeah. based on your own merit rather than duration of service. And whilst I was saying it, it did ring true to the fact that that isn't necessarily always the case with with some companies, even though it should be in that type of environment where it is based on KPIs and billings and outcome and revenue. Um, but there is a certain degree in your first three or four years in recruitment where 
unfortunately you are hitting these glass ceilings because you just haven't got the duration of service or the longevity um, within a certain niche to be promoted. Um, you know, you're yeah. not necessarily uh, a manager straight away um, just based on your billings. But yeah. that is my experience of that. Um, you know, because I did that 47K, I was made a manager within like three weeks of that. Um, ah, you know. I, so, see, I see. Yeah, so I think it's just an unusual, probably unique experience because it was a smaller boutique and um, all the other, the recruitment uh, firms that we worked, Kat and I worked for, that it was also like that as well. I think um, because we were doing so well, they just wanted to just give us something more um, on yes. top of their commission. So, yes. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. It should be a much more structured process mm-hmm. where there's clear criteria for progression. You know, there's, mm-hmm. of course, the the billings is important, but there should mm-hmm. be other aspects to like certain competencies that you need to develop and and so on and mm-hmm. consistency over a period of time mm-hmm. and then you earn the 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 promotion or what have you but yeah okay interesting mm. um do you know something we we hadn't planned to talk about this but i think it's important mm-hmm. what do you think um made you like what are the characteristics of a successful recruiter that business owners should look for when they're hiring people for their own teams, mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. guess your own person, your own experience as a recruiter doing really, really well quickly, but also mm-hmm. because you've placed so many recruiters, mm. what are the common characteristics of mm-hmm. the ones who, who really take to it and, and, mm-hmm. and do incredibly well? Yeah, I guess there's, Two answers to that, because obviously I know my own personality traits and I know the way um, I'm relentless and thorough with searches. I enjoy candidate sourcing, which is probably quite unique as well. Uh, Most people out there don't really like the monotony of um, trailing through X amount of profiles or CVs, but I enjoyed that part of it. Um, Just a sense of urgency as well and just thinking, you know, um, a a competitor could swoop in at any moment or um, perhaps you you just need that work ethic and that absolute grafter's mindset to just stop at nothing and try and tweak your filters on searches. Um, and to be honest, it was just a, it was a steep learning curve despite doing well. Um, you know, it's, it was a steep learning curve in the sense that everything was great, but then I worked in a market which um, was high turnover. It was very, very risky. There was no, um, it was all the risk was on, the rec to rec agent um, versus the client because it was just a rebate period, which yes, shares the risk between two parties, but it was contingent. It wasn't a retained model in any way. So um, it was all heavily reliant upon um, the candidate getting through the re- their rebate period, which um, mm-hmm. you just sort of close your eyes and cross your fingers um, some of the time. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, in terms of when clients would tell me what they wanted to see versus what I um, I guess uh, the profile of an ideal recruiter for them was slightly different um, in terms of the fact that a client would come to me and say all the usual buzzwords saying, look, I would like somebody who's maybe got some sales experience. If they haven't got sales experience, do they have a degree? Um and they're competitive, they're resilient, um, they have good time management skills. And all of this, you could apply to any role out there, not just a recruiter. Sure. So, you know, you take it with a pinch of salt. And, you know, at this point, I probably work on 20 different roles. So I'd heard it before. Um, but in terms of what I looked for personally was um, emotional intelligence, somebody who was a storyteller, somebody who was inquisitive and would um really want to know the intricate details of things but not too much that I thought um they would be a procrastinator um mm-hmm. and uh, I guess just just little things like can they elaborate on experiences rather than just saying a buzzword so rather than just saying I'm a people person for example you know we, we used to hear that all the time and and I guess it makes recruiters wince slightly because there's so much more to this role than being a people person um and so that's where the coaching would come in with these trainees you know just sort of saying look I appreciate that you're new to this however that phrase doesn't really encompass what we do in recruitment um so yeah I mean there's there's quite a few different traits that um, make up a good recruiter. Um, but for me, it was work ethic um, and the urgency. Um, mm. And they were my two big ones, to be honest, I would yeah. say. Mm. Interesting. And so work ethic, I know mm. 
we've not touched on this, but you also had various jobs all throughout university, didn't you? You've always been that grafter. Where does that come from? I think maybe, well, obviously my parents. So my mum and stepdad were teachers um, and my mum was an IT technician as well. So she had a couple of jobs. Um, My dad and stepmom were entrepreneurs. They had their own equestrian business and a bathroom and and tile uh, showroom in the Lake District. So I... I guess I always had that um, that working parents and always just had that grafter's mindset. You know, at the age of 16, I became head waitress after a couple of weeks at a pub, um, but I was managing like 30 and 40-year-olds at 16. Um, so I think just naturally I had the confidence to be able to do that um, and train people up from quite a young age um, that when I fell into this quite like – quite coincidentally, a market where I had to coach and train the candidates, it just worked really well um, because I'd had that experience before, you know, not just when I was 16, throughout uni I had, um, I was manager of a few restaurants and bars um, and I had my own radio show and, you know, I was one of those people who just wanted like fingers in a lot of pies at all times just to keep busy, so... Amazing. All right. Well, that does yeah. not surprise me at all. So um, tell me about starting your business then, because you had yes. how many years experience by that stage? Four years. So Kat Four and years, I, okay. yeah, we worked at a recruitment to recruitment business. It was very small. There was only five of us. And it yeah. got to the point where Kat and I, we, we were sat essentially in a, an apartment in London. So we weren't in, a, in an official office. And so we understood at this point, like the infrastructure or the, um, I guess, the capital that you need is not much at all you know you, you could work from home and we had our client base we had our reputations within the market and um at this point I was 25 Kat was 26 so really young really in terms of um starting a business but um we were still working 60 to 65 hours a week if not more and then we just decided the time is now let's just try and set up Excel Jones so after work even during these long hours um we would go to each other's houses and write a business plan it took us three weeks to write a really really good business plan for the purposes Mm -hmm. of going to pitch to the East London um, small business loan company um, that we'd researched and heard about through Citizens Advice Bureau. Um, And we knew that if we were able to produce a really good business plan, they would um, give us a loan of of five grand each, which was all we needed just to get started, like to provide us with a a laptop and and just, a, a, you know, some money for job boards and, you know, just the, the the startup costs of a working from home lifestyle recruitment business. So, um, so Kat and I, this was October 2014, and it's probably the worst time to start a graduate recruitment business in terms of it's not grad season. Um, but that's another thing. Whenever, when is the right time? You've just got to go for it, I think, sometimes when it comes to um, big decisions like this. So we pitched our business plan and there and then they wrote us a check for 5k each. And we thought we had to pitch to a panel of people. We we were like really prepared for uh, objections and and, um, resistance, but it was... um, dare I say, easy um, to get there. (laughs) Well, do you know what? I think Mm. it's a... I had a similar experience. I started my business when I was 28. Yeah. And I did not, I was, I did not have like six months, you know, uh, living expenses saved up, uh, mm. which is the recommended, like, cause it might take six months to get up and running and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to uh, government agencies and banks to get uh, funding, but actually, and, and everyone said yes to me because Uh, I had done similar to you. I'd written this like 40 page business plan. I don't even think they read it. I just like, I put it down on the desk and it was, they were, they flipped through it and they're like, whoa, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they sent it to their, um, you know, the department that Mm -hmm. uh, decides, like looks at the numbers, but I'd done Mm -hmm. really thorough P&L forecasts and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And they just was like, okay, you're in. (laughs) Uh, I think having done that preparation speaks like volumes about how serious and committed you are about making yeah. making it work perhaps yeah so so you got this funding what happened next so we handed our notice in and um the company we work we were working for they they didn't actually provide a valid contract or, or payroll so we weren't bound by any covenant so we could hit the ground running straight away with 
our existing client base that we brought over from company to company. Um, and we had probably the best first year that we had, you know, for the whole, for the whole time we had the business. Um, and it was just a combination of um, being able to contact your existing client base. And it was just no different. We were just at home. Um, and within sort of the first 10 days, we um, made our first placement. So um, it was just very easy for us. But the, the only difference was that, um, Kat and I took it upon ourselves to essentially operate in a 180 model versus two 360 recruiters. We um, split it because Kat absolutely loved the business development side, which I loathed, and vice versa. She hated the candidate side, and I absolutely loved the candidate side and the, you know, the going through X amount of CVs to find the gem. So it worked really well. Um, and yeah, I mean, we were typical 25 and 26 year olds who were having a, a great time with our lifestyle recruitment business, working from home making deals in our pajamas <laughs> and, um, <laughs> literally and then, where you actually sat yeah, there in your pajamas <laughs> we, we, we you know our first placement our average deal value it's, it's fairly low because it's graduates and trainees like it's four yeah. it was 4k and we just thought well we've just made 4k in our pajamas and um, <laughs> you know we um we we had many holidays abroad like our christmas parties were in paris so we still had the same sort of lifestyle that we would have if it, we were in an office and even on the first day i um put a, a ribbon up on the the door so Cat could cut it when she came through the door. So we um, we lived two tube stops from each other. So it was really easy for us to work at one another's house. Um, one week on at her house, one week on at my house. And we met all of our candidates face-to-face in bars, restaurants, cafes, hotels. And um, yeah, it worked really, really well. And uh, we were having a great time. <laughs> we finally got to the point of, wow, we've got Excel Jones. We've done it. We've said it two, three weeks into our careers. And four years later, here we are. So <laughs> I love the... Christmas party in Paris sounds good. Yes. Um, we just we should probably explain a couple of things for our international listeners. One, mm. it's tube is the subway. Yes. Probably most people know that from like movies and TV, but just in case. Yeah. Secondly, people may be puzzled about how you were so young and you'd already done these degrees. Because mm. in North America, certainly in Canada, but I think it's the same in the States, when you do your law degree, you already have a degree before that. Mm. And whereas in the UK, you can go straight from high school into law or medicine or whatever, yeah. right? Yes. So you yeah. you were... Because people are like, how has she fit all this in? And she's still so young. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was a three-year so, law degree, then a one-year yeah. master's, and then I went straight yeah. into it. Kat did a, a degree for three years, <laughs> and then she went traveling for two years. So that's why she was slightly older than me when she started her Got career. It. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that I guess that's the one thing I would say is if there are anybody who is thinking about setting up their own business or they are just leaving uni, you know, you never know, we could get some people listening who are, um, in that stage of thinking whether a career for recruitment is for them or not is just your career can wait for you slightly like two days after I'm handing in my dissertation I mean that is um you know very quick um and yeah. I think even now like I think you know I hit the peak of my career of having my own business at 25 that easily that could have been 26 27 you know so um but yeah I think it's it's one of those things you think about when your career has moved quite quickly in that way so mm, interesting <laughs> so having worked Recruiting for recruiters for 10 years, what are some of the key things that you learned that you think other recruitment business owners might benefit from knowing? Quite a few things, really. Um, the first prominent thing that springs to mind is the fact that if a candidate or a trainee didn't work out for some reason, that would be it. You know, requirements would change. They'd become really strict and they would tarnish everyone with the same brush. So, for example, if someone was commuting uh, 45, uh, 50 minutes into London to their offices and then they just didn't work out for some reason or other, they would blame the commute and therefore the requirements moving forward would be and somebody has to live in London, they can't be commuting. And I just think it's a case, it should be a case by case basis. And, um, you know, I had really good relationships with clients and to the point where sometimes I would, well, almost always send profiles that were off spec because I wanted to open their mind to a talent pool that perhaps they weren't aware of because they were so fixated on the mold, the mold or the model of um, person that they'd hired before. And, you know, despite clients, um, 
business owners, recruitment business owners saying that they wanted a diverse and um, dynamic culture. They didn't want, um, you know, sort of molds of one another. Essentially, that's what they would look for naturally is um, the the salesy, the overt, the um, extrovert types who um, were very, very confident, um, who maybe had a sales background um, in a state agent or a telesales role. And my, throughout my 10-year career, I did try to challenge that status quo on a numerous occasions. And it, it did work once I proved my point with a few clients where, for example, the relationship with them, they would um, just give me slots in their diary and I would book people in. So there was never that tango with negotiating someone in for an interview. They just trust my judgment. And then, you know, they were taking people on who weren't perhaps the mold of recruitment um, in terms of being that Jack the Lad or, um, you know, real uh, gregarious, quite um, boiler room type style individual. Um, and then that for me was was a huge step forward that I was able to influence um, the types of people that were going into the recruitment market as well. Mm, interesting. And so, um, like, can you think of an example of a time you placed someone who on paper or at first impression maybe wasn't a typical, <laughs> like, um, trainee recruiter who actually ended up doing really well? Yeah, multiple times. So um, in recruitment, I would say recruitment business owners, if they see retail, for example, on a profile, they would arguably say that that's a reactive sales position. It's not proactive. Um, However, if I've interviewed and screened that person, I know that they've got a strong work ethic. They've maybe had to upsell, cross-sell, handle objections and complaints. And there's more to it than just on the face of it being a retail sales position. And you know, hospitality, for example, again, you know, people don't see the correlation between that and potentially coming into recruitment, but that was my background. So I was a real Mm. advocate for people who had hospitality experience, again, you know, um, juggling various different tasks at any one time, handling those complaints, building rapport, um, having that strong time uh, management and organizational skills, work ethic, grafters mindset. Um, And so, it did it did get to the point where I was able to convince my clients to at least give these people um, a go and a chance. And, you know, they did they did hire these people. And one of them is still well, not one of them, multiple people are still in their roles now. Um, you know, I keep sort of tabs on where my candidates have gone and if they're still there. And, you know, one of the, the guys commented on my LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago and it was his like seven seven anniversary or something at the company. So awesome. You know, that's when you think yes you know I've, I've really sort of um challenged the status quo and broke apart the the i guess the stereotypical um mold of what a recruitment a recruiter perhaps looks like so awesome mm. awesome since you're listening to this podcast it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement that's something we have in common i really enjoy listening to podcasts reading and listening to business books watching ted talks but by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Talk to me about the um, sort of 180 rule versus a 360 mm-hmm. rule. Cause I think in the, like when I was coming up in recruiting, it was much more common for each individual to run a full desk mm-hmm. and each person is a profit center. Now there's pros and cons to everything, right? Because on the plus side, um, it's very easy to see who's doing well and who's not because it's clear cut. Either you're hitting your target, you're not, there's no one else that you can, like it's all on you to, uh, to, to reach your target. 
on the other hand, it is not, I mean, that's a really challenging role and not everyone is suited to that. And I actually think looking back, I would have been much better off. I did, I did well as a recruiter, but I don't think I hit my potential. Um, I think I would have been better off focusing on the BD without the distractions of the candidate side of things. Cause actually that's what I was better at. I was less good at recruiting. I was better at selling, but yeah. what, what have you seen in terms of different business models and what conclusions have you yeah, come to about that? I'd say the first three or four years, it was just full 360. They had to either build up their own desk <laughs> or they were given and inherited some clients. But essentially, you were um, managing all parts of the process from candidate sourcing to managing that pr- candidate process um, to speaking with the client and bringing on your own business. And that is a lot. It's, it's a lot in terms of a, a role. And so when we talk about the full 360, if we really broke it down um you know it's really complex and so i've the first four five years three four five years um i probably saw that happening and then people started to understand that i guess there were there was a way to split that in terms of this 180 model and i really i guess we gravitate and i gravitated towards those companies because that's the model we had so we could best um i guess we could um speak to the candidates about how that model worked and how they could go into an interview and explain um, that they knew and had the understanding of that model as well. But the 180 model, I think it's more efficient because obviously you've got um, not you're not being pulled in other directions at all times. You know, you're not constant, constantly reacting to try and generate more business because you filled the business that you've got. Um, actually, you've got a constant pipeline being built by the business development team and you can focus on candidate sourcing or vice versa. You can bring the roles in knowing that your candidate team or the delivery team that is there is working on that. So it takes the pressure off slightly. And I, th- I, I genuinely believe that the, the companies that I recruited for that operated in that model were the most successful and they probably continue to be now um, the most successful. It's certainly easier to learn the job 180 degrees at a time rather mm-hmm. than all at once. Yeah. Um, so even if ultimately... Mm-hmm. You, you will develop people into 360 uh, consultants. I believe it's better to, you know, only introduce one side yeah. of the desk at a time um, yeah. mm-hmm. because it is a lot to try and pick up all at once. Yeah. Also, I think companies need to be open-minded that if someone does start in a delivery capacity, that they have the opportunity to go over to the other side if they wanted to. That's something that I saw quite often was um, one, people just assuming they would be in that delivery capacity um, for the duration um, and not Mm -hmm. actually offering up the other side. But also, not everybody wants to be a manager when they join recruitment. You know, there is Mm -hmm. the principal consultant route. Um, However, I think that's something to perhaps uh, draw attention to is that a lot of my clients, they would want to find the superstars, the leaders, and actually they should be looking for those people that are impressive and are extraordinary, but not necessarily um, the leaders of you know their company or they're going to end up with everybody wanting to be a leader. So essentially mm-hmm. the mindset should be, you know, look for some foot soldiers as well um, to, to go along for the ride, which are still going to build really well for you. But then you're not going to have the conflict of everyone wanting to become a manager. So, mm, okay. Mm. Interesting. What are some of the most effective uh, sort of assessment <laughs> methods that you've seen? Because um, it's funny when I ask recruitment business owners about their own hiring process, it's pretty sketchy. Like considering that we work in the recruiting industry, we should have a really awesome, you know, mm-hmm. and thorough hiring process, but it's mm-hmm. typically like one or two interviews. And then it's a gut feel like, Oh, do you like her? Yeah. If she's good, let's try, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. So yeah. the companies that you think had the best sort of uh, retention and, mm-hmm. you know, best success rate, what were some of the mm-hmm. methods you saw that w- for, for assessing candidates? Yeah, I mean, Kat and I would welcome it if my client came to us and said, look, we're gonna, going to um, introduce a trial day stage um, for candidates to give them a taster of what it's like in the day of the life of a recruiter. And we, you know, we welcomed that because for us, that would help with retention. It would give the candidate an insight of the day-to-day life. It would give the client an insight into how they learn across a day. Um, you know, do they retain info? Do they improve upon that info that's given in the feedbacks that that's been given um and 
yeah, I mean, sometimes it would help, sometimes it wouldn't. Um, some people, perhaps graduates and trainees, would get cold feet and not turn up to those. But essentially, that's mm-hmm. what we needed to see was um, who's right. going to get to that point of, of fighting for an opportunity or, or feeling it's right for them. Um, I guess the assessment day scenario um we were never a fan of and that's purely on the basis that we gravitated towards the SMEs and smaller boutiques because we had worked in those types of environments so it was there was never a, a volume need for those types of um, assessment um, but uh, and then there was the role plays and I, I, I guess when it comes to, to hiring trainees the reason perhaps you say that it's um, quite sketchy is because it's very subjective to the person. You're basing your um, assessment on someone's personality and the way they come Mm. across versus their skill set if they're a trainee. Um, Mm. And that's why it's so difficult to measure and to pinpoint unless you're just going to check some boxes and and have that process there. Um, Mm. But when I was an internal recruiter, I would hold weekly assessment days and I saw the value in that. Um, But my, I guess, ultimate conclusion was that people were just fighting for airtime and that it was lip service and it wasn't um, authentic or um, genuine, uh, a genuine way to assess uh, a group of people. It was who shouted the loudest and they were the people that were picked for the next step. Yeah, no, I can see that totally. I like the Mm -hmm. idea of the trial day of actually getting someone on the phone and giving them a task and seeing how how they do, because I feel Mm -hmm. like, Almost just a willingness to do that speaks mm-hmm. volumes yes. rather than, you know, because it it could be quite daunting, really. Mm-hmm. And if but if you have the guts to just give it a try and it almost doesn't it matters less what results you get. Yes. It's more mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. seeing your willingness to to. Mm-hmm step outside your comfort zone and to take on a new skill set and so on. Yeah, I mean, um, Kat and I did prep candidates quite heavily before those sessions just so they would feel yeah. comfortable as if they were doing the calls with us. So we would do role plays with them um, just to give them the head start so it wasn't mm. the first time they were doing it. So, you know, we would act as a candidate and they would, and we would give them ideas of, of qualification questions, but they were given a little bit of guidance, obviously, on these trial days. They weren't just thrown in the deep end, but essentially it was just to see how they would um, sink or swim, I guess. So yeah, wow, you were thorough with your prep. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll come on to that if we have time. Mm. Um, so, any other takeaways or like mm-hmm. key things that business owners should bear in mind if they want to scale their business and they want to hire? Mm. Um, what else have you seen in terms of like um, mistakes or you know? Um, success factors um i guess <clears throat> clients tend to now well the last say few years that i worked in that space paint the gruesome side of recruitment which is fine because the, the purpose of that is to see if a candidate runs or um you know sticks around and i think there is um method to that uh, there's a there's a there's a reason for that and there's a purpose for that however i do think that whilst recruitment is very tough, you do need resilience, um, you do need to be able to pitch it as well. And I think um, some clients have lost sight of the fact that they need to pitch about their company and that like what their differentiators are. And we talk about that all the time with our inner circle group, you know, in terms of know your differentiators, what sets you apart. And it's a huge factor when it comes to uh, recruiting or hiring for recruitment uh, companies, because there's so many of them. So um, it's a huge, huge um, factor uh, when it comes to not just uh, when you're interviewing candidates, not just assuming that they're going to be doing all the pitching. It's a two-way street. Mm, absolutely. You know, and again, this is something I see that many small but growing recruiting companies don't have in place is they haven't really worked out their own employer value proposition. They haven't got, you know, there's really three uh, customers or three audiences that recruitment businesses need to promote themselves to. There's, of course, the clients, the candidates, but also potential employees for their own business, right? So, and they they understand the first two, but often they they forget about the third audience, which is their own future employees. Yeah. And they don't give much thought to how are they going to sell the opportunity? What's going to attract you know, a high potential individual who maybe is interviewing with multiple recruitment agencies? Mm-hmm. What's going yeah. to 
bring those people, attract those people to want to work for them mm-hmm. and really being able to articulate that. And it could be a case of capturing like what they already have that is special and is going to like makes it an awesome place to work, the culture, the values and so on. But it may also be a case of, well, actually we don't have enough. We need to really enhance our own, you know, um, you know, our own company benefits, both financial or non-financial benefits and make this into a, a place that could be like an award-winning company to work for. Yeah. And, exactly. and really think hard about that. Were there, were there any examples of companies who did a really good job of that and what did they yeah. offer that was a, really attractive? Yeah. Um, a structured training program that they could genuinely show the modules for. Um, yeah. Also um, the, the fact that their managers were uh, grown organically. So they weren't just from other companies. It was more of a yeah. case of look what your path could be. Here's a manager um, and here's our success story. Um, and in equally as well, like when they, they um, introduced, say, people who'd been with the company six, 12 months. They, they got them in for 15, 10, 15 minutes to speak to the person. It just gave uh, a first-hand perspective of somebody who was slightly lower um, down in the, the sort of the food chain in terms of um, the level of seniority. And that just gave a, a real good perspective of what it'd be like for your first six, 12, 18 months. So, mm. um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few things. Mm-hmm. Any, those are all great. Any other mm-hmm. ideas like of the companies that you found it easiest to recruit mm-hmm. for? Um, I would say when you have smaller boutiques and SMEs, usually the CEO is still very much at the forefront of the company. They're very much hands on mm-hmm. billing. They're very involved in the training. And that's great. So you have that relationship with the CEO. You're able to feedback really directly and transparently um, about everything in terms of the process and what the candidate's feedback has been. Mm-hmm. If you are recruiting for a bigger company, um, I, I, I placed uh, with, with one company, they had offices across Europe and, and UK. There were 700 plus strong and I play 75 grads across two years with them and they and my success with them was because I never spoke to the CEO I spoke to nine different hiring managers had relationships with them all and that's because they were at the forefront and they were the person who would be training these trainees so I knew exactly what they wanted um, versus when I was an internal recruiter the CEO wasn't um, on the sales floor however he was the sole decision maker on who would come through the company so the Mm. disconnect there is when a hiring manager receives their new trainee who they've never met or never interviewed it didn't work out and it's almost there's it's very obvious why it didn't so um I guess when it comes to hiring, I know that say if you were a technology recruitment uh, business owner, naturally when you recruit senior positions, you speak to the CEO, you have that as your point of contact because it's a senior level that you're um, recruiting for. But I guess you need to think about it differently when you're recruiting for your own firm if you're not hands-on, if you're not at the forefront of your company. You know, give that job to your hiring managers, trust in your hiring managers that they're going to, going to hire people who's going to be right for their team dynamics and their um, and integrate them into their um, niche or vertical, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um and don't and don't be a bottleneck, I guess, you know, just le- just trust in the fact that your hiring managers will hire somebody who's right for their team. Otherwise, retention, you're not going to have the retention. Let's talk about retention, Leanne, because mm-hmm. this is probably the I think the biggest um, fault or problem with our industry mm-hmm. is such a high churn and a poor staff retention. It's almost a revolving yeah. door in many. Yes. And I don't think any owner likes that. I don't think, I mean, obviously some firms are better than others. There's always mm-hmm. a spectrum, but I don't think anyone like wants to have a high churn rate, which is ultimately a drain on profits, mm-hmm. right? And reputation. Mm-hmm. What do you, what did you observe and what do you think were are some of the keys to improving on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was tricky. I mean, that was a massive factor when it came to um, being a success in this market or not. Um, sometimes it was out of our control. Other times we had um, an opportunity to provide the aftercare, um, even though it's not, you know, it's not exactly reflected in the pay packet in terms of the fee that you're charging for a trainee, um, but you want to support your client um, in terms of the first onboarding and the, the first six months. Um, and 
you know, we even try and preempt it when, before a candidate even starts. We, you know, keep the line of communication open and say, look, we know how tough recruitment can be in your first six months. So, you know, once you get over that first six months hurdle, then you'll see and reap the rewards. But you have to graph through that period. And, um, yeah, I guess that's where, you know, we had a lot of um, turnover with, with with clients and, you know, clients were really mindful of it as well. They didn't want to have that percentage of people leaving their businesses, you know, especially now that we've got like Glassdoor and um, sort of Google reviews where people can, um, you know, leave uh, if they've been left with a sour taste in their mouth. It's not necessarily the recruitment business themselves. It's just that it wasn't for them as a career. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's... Um, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky um, subject because I, I I feel like I had the best success in terms of retention with um, companies where um, the CEO of those companies I actually placed into recruitment in 2010 and 11. They oh, grew wow. throughout their companies, left mm-hmm. their company, and then five, six years later come to me and say, we've set up our own business. Um, we'd like you to hire for our company because we know how thorough you are, like, because I, they were my candidates. So they know that, yeah. you know, we'll do a good job. And I did a quick check before this call, actually. And every single one that I've placed with the three companies that, had been set up by my previous candidates. Every single person I've placed is still there. And so there's something in that. There is. And I think it's an appreciation (laughs) of the work that goes in to the process of finding candidates for a recruitment um, business. And I think if there are recruitment business owners out there that are using Rectorex, like appreciate the the screening and the time that goes into that and that trust their judgment and do your bit Mm -hmm. in terms of... um, taking your you've taken the chance you've obviously uh, invested in the interview process so invest in that person a little longer than perhaps you would have done in the past um because I, I found sometimes clients would um give people 10 days and then if they weren't sort of showing any promise within 10 days then they'd, that would be it they'd be out the door right. and and it's mm. and it's tricky when you're persuading people to relocate from Manchester or Scotland to London and they're up sticks, they've got flats and deposits to pay for and then all of a sudden they're jobless again. It's a real tricky it comes mm. back to you as the as the rector rec who's trying to, you know, help them with their first professional career. Um, yeah. and yeah, and I think it's um it's one of those topics where clients are genuinely trying to improve upon um the, the businesses towards the end of my um career in rec to rec um they were doing everything they could to put in um i guess not progress uh plans but just something to help them get through the first six months uh, more so than ever um yeah do you know what you you touched on something which i think is worth highlighting which is that a lot of recruiting businesses make the worst clients and mm-hmm. you would think that they would understand to be hugely empathetic to their rec to rec agency right they would you would think they would know what a perfect client looks like like good communication mm-hmm. really great brief quick decisions mm-hmm. um you know, being cooperative and and transparent and, you know, even giving exclusivity or even, you know, paying a, a good, you know, reasonable market rate or even paying a little more than market because you want to really incentivize and partner with your mm. rec to rec. And I see that the opposite is often the case, which mm-hmm. blows my mind, like how mm-hmm. you wouldn't work under those conditions, or at least you wouldn't be doing your best work under those conditions. So why would you expect your rec to rec company to Mm. work that way? It just seems Mm -hmm. obvious to to me, but was was there anything else that you found in common with those Mm -hmm. three companies that you had the best success with that Um, they did to maximize their staff retention? 180 model. They all had a 180 model and, um, I guess because they had been trainees and and had grown through um, the recruitment companies they had, they cherry picked the parts that they felt worked for them um, and then sort of left behind some of the the aspects that didn't. And so they created these three, these guys created the three companies, which I guess were just like um, a really evolved model of recruitment rather than just the standard boiler room churn, Mm. you know, 
bombs on seats as the phrases that we, we say in the UK. Um, so, yeah, I guess they just had a, a really modern way of looking at recruitment and actually taking somebody on wasn't just to see if they would work out. It was a real investment in somebody as if they were senior, despite just having, you know, X amount of sales experience or, or none at all. Um, and also they were very open to profiles. Um, they probably uh, they they probably interviewed profiles that my sort of standard client base wouldn't and so therefore they open their mind to a different talent pool that my clients other clients would never have interviewed so they now have people who they have trained up extensively they've obviously done really well and they're still there um and they just didn't fit on paper the mold that perhaps the other clients were looking for Mm, interesting okay Mm. that's brilliant takeaways um what would you say was the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in your business or your career that you'd be open to sharing, Leanne? So um, Kat and I, we both realized that, uh, I guess it was about three years in, we were just enjoying the business. It was a lifestyle business. And even though we'd done the extensive business plan, we didn't really have any strategy as to where we wanted the business to go. We were young. It was going well. We had, you know, good money coming in. Um, and Kat in 2018 felt that she'd lost her mojo with recruitment um, and she wanted to become a life coach and actually moved to Bali which was, you know, it was out of the blue, but, um, you know, I respected that. And, you know, Kat went traveling two years before starting recruitment and she's, she's always been that person who just loves to go and explore. So it wasn't too much of a shock in that respect. Um, so she left the business, um, in 2018, um, and I continued the business solo for the, the next two years. And so that was a huge challenge going from, um, having a business partner, everything was shared, you know, the, every drop out every success every win to then being solo and back mm. to 360 recruiter after you know being 180 at, well being a, a candidate resourcer essentially um but it wasn't too much of a transition because obviously I knew how to do full 360 it wasn't alien to me um but what I did find was that because Kat left the business I was overcompensating with activity so my hours shot right back to what mm. I was like at the start of my career so um I, I worked out some figures because this is the presentation that I shared with our inner circle members about my activity levels but over a 90-day period the CVs that I viewed in that time were 33,070 CVs and then I downloaded I downloaded of those 33,000 8,484 so I was overcompensating for the fact that cat wasn't in the business and that's when I realized something had to change so um that's when I started looking at automation and systemization of the business, which I've shared obviously with our inner circle um, members as well. Um, but just on the the question in terms of the biggest challenge, that was one of the two challenges um, was cat leaving. Um, and the second was the fact that um, I fell pregnant. And so um, it wasn't a challenge uh, per se. It was just um, I was a solo business owner. I clearly had an expiry date coming and a, a deadline um, and a due date uh, coming. And so I wasn't quite sure as a self-employed business owner what to do in the months that you know my baby was going to arrive. Um, so I always had like a buffer in the bank, you know, as many business owners try to, you know, cash flow for small boutiques is always a bit of an issue. Um, but I had enough that would cover me for a couple of months and, you know, That's how I was just going to roll with it. Um, And then two weeks before Oliver was due, I had 33 grand's worth of business just drop in one car. Oh, my goodness. That's horrendous. Yeah. And I just couldn't come back from it. Um, It was such a shame and obviously a stressful time and a huge challenge that I've, uh, you know, been in. It's quite a stressful situation. And, yeah, and, and it was just the realization that, I can't come back from this right now, you know, maybe revisit it. But ultimately, that was the decision made that I'm going to have to close the business. And um, yeah, and then I I, I just uh, I closed the business. And, and that was that, you know, clients were offering me jobs, like all my recruiters and stuff were offering me internal recruitment jobs. But, you know, with a baby on the way in two weeks, I couldn't essentially do that. So, um, yeah, that was probably the, the two big challenges. Oh man, mm-hmm. I I mean that must have been so tough to have. So thirty three k is basically yeah. fifty thousand dollars worth of mm. business 
drop yeah. out mm-hmm. um, yeah. two weeks before you're due to have a baby. Mm, yeah, I can't. I can't imagine how much stress you were you were mm-hmm. under. How did you How did you get through that uh, period, Leanne? So prior to about a couple of months prior to that happening, I joined a coaching group and um, I tried to systemize the business and I uh, hired a couple of VAs and my sister and friend to just see if we could um, like sort of take some of the responsibility off my shoulders in terms of the actual activity of the business. Um, And then um, what happened was because I was very prominent in that coaching group, um, I shared the success I had. I was on hot seats um, that I reached out to them when this happened and they offered me a job as a coach um, with the coaching group. So I um, essentially had Oliver and then three weeks later I was working full time with him. Oh home. my goodness. <laughs> as <Wow>. a coach. <laughs> okay. So um, full on, but you do what you've got to do, you know, in those situations. And um, yeah, I've obviously always had a strong work ethic, but that was a testing time. Um, so yeah, I was a COO and, and a a coach a coaching group and um essentially covid hit um and i'd inherited this membership model and the coaching group so it was it was always going to be something just to get me by um whilst i was finding my feet in motherhood and also not having a business anymore um and then covid hit and then i realized that the business um, wasn't aligned to like the professional growth that i wanted um so i did decide to leave and had my very delayed uh, maternity leave in the July. So I had the whole of July off, um, which is when my birthday is. And that's when you contacted me on LinkedIn. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad that, uh, you know, it's amazing how sometimes things that seem really challenging or difficult turn out to be mm-hmm. the best thing that could have happened. Because mm-hmm. my side of this story, Leanne, is um, I've had this co- this coaching business since 2001 and, you know, had more or less settled into a comfort zone. It's, it's so dangerous how that can happen because it's slowly over time without you even realizing that you've put limitations on yourself and you just kind of get used to a certain way of working. So I was a solo practitioner with a virtual assistant and I'd had that model for years but I'd really plateaued in terms of hitting a ceiling as one person does, like there is only so much one person can do. Um, and then when COVID hit, like my sales fell off a cliff in March, 2020. And I had to really, that actually was hugely liberating in a way. It was scary as hell, but it, um, it really meant I had to rip up what I was doing and try something different. And it also kind of was freed me up to think, well, you know, if what I was doing is no longer working in this marketplace, I may as well just reinvent myself and and the business model. And uh, so I was speaking with uh, a client who knew both of us and knew mm-hmm. had, had worked with you and was singing your praises. And, um, I thought, wait a sec, what was that lady's name again? Mm-hmm. Cause he described you as being like this dynamic, super <laughs> organized, um, you know, person who makes stuff happen and, and had, uh, you know, introduced all kinds of really great systems and, and, you know, created lots of engagement and, and mm-hmm. someone who he really respected and, and, and rated. So I was like taking down this name, Leanne, Sarah Jones Hunt, right? As just as you do, like in recruiting, you get you say, who was that? What was that person's name? And uh, I looked you up on LinkedIn and I was like, I need to talk to this person. Like this could be, because in the back of my mind, I'm always aware of my limitations. Like I'm Mm -hmm. great at ideas, at Mm -hmm. strategies, but, um, you know, the follow through and the detail mm-hmm. and the attention to detail in the organization is probably mm-hmm. my Achilles heel. Mm. And so I thought I approached you and I, at that stage, I actually didn't have a job for yeah. you and didn't know how I could make this work. But I just mm. knew mm-hmm. that you were maybe the person that I had mm-hmm. been look, like looking for without properly looking uh, for, for years. So then I approached you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny how this kind of happened because... I really wasn't 
set up to, I didn't have mm-hmm. like the funds to be able mm-hmm. to hire you or whatever, but I just decided I need to figure out how to make this work. And I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the business has just absolutely taken off since, you know, mm-hmm. we start working together. Mm-hmm. We redesigned the, you know, mm-hmm. essentially the service that I was offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just like, we're getting such huge traction. It's, it blows my mind sometimes yeah. how much we've, we've grown in the last mm-hmm. six months even. Yeah, um, So, sorry, I took over the conversation mm-hmm. there, but I wanted <laughs> to share my side. <laughs> well, no, when I received your message on LinkedIn, I was in the Lake District. That's where I'm originally from. And it was, mm-hmm. I was on my maternity leave and I leapt out of my seat because I knew of you in the industry. You know, I was, I was approaching similar, um, similar coaches, uh, recruitment coaches in that space. And I just remember, I still remember now just leaping out of my seat going, oh my God, like, <laughs> Mark, Mark has actually just messaged me. And then um, we had a few scars calls and you know I produced a, a bit of a mini presentation for you and and yeah. that was it and I think that's one of the recurring um conversations that you have with previous podcast guests is you know there's never a right time to hire sometimes it's you know if somebody comes along and they look they are you know a fit then absolutely make it happen because you and I together have absolutely um gone above and beyond what I perhaps even we thought at the start that we could achieve in a pandemic and um you know our inner circle uh, membership and the community that we've built is just something that I'm so proud of and that's going to continue to grow and you know the value add that we're we're giving and the information and the um the accountability that we're giving to our members um you can just see it you see the success you see the outcome and to go from you know from zero to i think 35 34 members now so you know we're doing really well awesome and uh so i owe you a huge i mean i'm grateful to you leanne for everything you've done uh for me and i i love working with you so this is um you know, coming back to that theme of mm-hmm. what is the positive of a terrible situation? And sometimes you don't know at the time mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm not saying the pandemic is a good thing. And obviously from mm-hmm. a global health perspective, it's been, it's been terrible. But for, from a business point of view, mm-hmm. I think there've been so many silver linings and, yeah. and actually it almost, sometimes you need that shock or that, like um, things to just blow up on you to to then force you to really step it up to another level and and find and innovate and create you know new products new services new ways of working new methods of marketing that maybe you had not had time or the it, or the uh, drive or inclination to to do before so that's been mm-hmm. tremendous Leanne. We could, there's so much we could share, right? There's mm. so many topics that we could delve into. So we might need to say, let's do another podcast episode in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any things that you had wanted to share today that we haven't covered? No, I guess, like you said, if there's a part two, then that'd be great. And I can, um, you know, there's only so much you can share in an hour. Right, um, exactly. And, you know, there's other things that I could touch upon next time in terms of when I was an internal recruiter. And um, I guess some of the things that I would have done differently um, as well. Um, so I guess that's to be continued. Yeah, exactly. Like there's things such as how you when you were a business owner, you put in systems and automation that allowed mm-hmm. you to claw back, like what was it, 25 hours a week and yeah. that sort of thing, building virtual assistant teams. There's lots we could we could delve into. Um, yeah. uh, you know, LinkedIn marketing, we've both been doing a lot of work in that area and our members have just mm. really embraced that and are starting to take off in, in regards to content marketing and becoming a leader and being visible in their in their market niche. So lots of subjects for the future, but uh, for now, let's say, um, let's say to be continued. Thank you so much, Leanne. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, Mark. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.